0: This is Ni'iman Novetsky from Tanakhstudy.com. In our last class, we started to delve into the first part of Aikra, chapter 25, learning about the mitzvah of Shemitah, the sabbatical year. We noted that it has been viewed as both a mitzvah bin Adam la Makom, a mitzvah between man and God, meant to help us recognize Hashem as creator, sustainer, and owner of all, and a mitzvah bin chavirel, a mitzvah between man and his fellow man, a year which is meant to equalize the rich and poor. Today, we'll look at the similar mitzvah of Yovel, discussed in verses 8 through 17, which also affects both the interpersonal realm and man's relationship with Hashem. The verses can be divided into two sections. Verses 8 through 13 detail the three distinct aspects of the Jubilee year the freeing of slaves, returning of property to its original owners, and letting the land lie fallow. Verses 14 through 17 then warn against taking advantage of another when selling land pointing out that all land sales should really be viewed as merely a lease until the next Jubilee, and paid for accordingly. Though the verses focus on taking advantage of another with regards to the laws of Yovel specifically, the unit has been understood by Chazal to prohibit taking advantage of the other in all realms of life, a prohibition known as onaah. We'll look at each of these two sections on their own, starting with verse 8 and the countdown to Yovel. Vesafarda You shall count off seven Sabbaths of years seven times seven years. shanim Shana, and there shall be to you the days of seven Sabbaths of years, even forty nine years. This verse mandates that we count seven Shmita cycles, or forty nine years until Yovel. However, it's not clear from the verse how this counting is supposed to work. As we asked by the mitzvah of Sefirat to Omer, the counting from the bringing of the Omer offering until the holiday of Shavuot, one might ask here too, is the verse mandating that one actually count out loud, or only that one must keep track of the 49-year cycle? If the former, how is one supposed to count? By years, by sabbatical cycles, or by both? Finally, is the obligation on the individual or on the court? Rav Yosef Pachoshur suggests that one can learn from the fact that the verse spells out both the seven sabbatical cycles, and also mentions 49 years, that the mitzvah must be to keep track of both, and that one must count both sabbatical cycles and years. So, for example, in the ninth year, one would say, this is one sabbatical and two years, which is nine years, etc. As opposed to Svirata HaOmer, though, which is an obligation that falls on every individual, the counting towards yovel is done only by the court, by Din. Rabbi Jonathan Sachs suggests that an important lesson might be learned from this difference in halakha. He says, Implicit here is an important principle of leadership. As individuals, we count the days. But as leaders, we must count the years. As private persons, we can think about tomorrow. But in our role as leaders, we must think long term, focusing our eyes on the horizon. Who is wise? Asked Benzoma, and answered, "One who foresees the consequences. Leaders, if they are wise, think about the impact of their decision many years from now." Verse nine teaches how one is supposed to announce the year. Then you shall sound the loud trumpet on the tenth day of the seventh month. On the Day of Atonement you shall sound the trumpet throughout all your land. On Mutz'eh Yom HaKippurim, at the beginning of the Yovel year, a shofar is sounded that proclaims the opening of the year. It is possible that this is a purely practical measure, a means of proclaiming that all slaves are now freed and all land returns to its owners. It's also possible, though, that the shofar functions in a similar manner to the shofar blast on Rosh Hashanah, which at least according to some, proclaim Malchut Hashem, proclaim the kingship of God. As we'll see as we continue learning, the two mitzvot of freeing slaves and lands relate to the theme of Hashem's kingship. In explaining the reason for the laws, we are told that we must return the land kili kol because the land belongs to God. And we must free slaves, ki avadaihin, because they are Hashem's slaves. At least one part of the mitzvah revolves around recognizing God as sovereign over all. And so perhaps... At the beginning of the Yovel year, we herald in the king through a shofar blast. The next few verses specify the various mitzvot around which the year of Yovel revolves. The freeing of slaves, returning of property to its original owners, and letting the land lie fallow. Verse 10. hamishim shana u'kratem ba'aretz You shall make the 50th year holy and proclaim liberty throughout the land to all its inhabitants. It shall be a jubilee to you, and each of you shall return to his own property, and each of you shall return to his own family. The fiftieth year shall be a jubilee to you. In it you shall not sow, neither reap that which grows of itself, nor gather from the undressed vines for it is a Jubilee, it shall be holy to you, you shall eat of its grains out of the field. Bishnata hazot Tashuvu Ish In this year of Jubilee each of you shall return to his property. These verses explicitly link us back to the theme of holiness that has been the subject of this half of Sefer VaYikra, telling us that we must sanctify the fiftieth year and that it will be holy for us. Three times in these few verses we are told that the year will be a jubilee, will be a yovel. What though does this term mean? And why is the fact repeated three times? Rashi suggests that the year is so called after the blowing of the shofar which announced it. Elsewhere in Tanakh too, a shofar is referred to as a keren Hayovel, or for short, yovel. For example, when the nation was at Mount Sinai, they are told vim shokh ha bahar. When the shofar blast ceases, they may ascend the mountain. Ramban questions Rashi on two fronts. First, he points out that yovel isn't actually the shofar, but the ram from which a shofar is made. Since during the yovel year, there is no obligation that the shofar be from a ram's horn specifically, it would be odd that the verse would highlight this fact. Moreover, even if we say that yovel is short for any animal's horn, it is still odd that the year be called after the blowing of the shofar specifically, since this would seem to be one of the more technical mitzvot of the year. One might respond, as we mentioned earlier, that really the shofar is not simply a technical proclamation, but actually hints to the entire essence of the year, one in which we recognize Hashem's sovereignty. A Benel points to a different aspect of the blowing of the shofar, suggesting that the word is supposed to remind us of the shofar cries of Matan Torah specifically. He points out that as opposed to the Shemitah year, which is referred to again and again as a Shabbat or a Shabbaton. Yovel never gets that name, even though on it too all work is forbidden. He explains that this is because while Shemitah is meant to recall Shabbat and Hashem's creation, Yovel is not, it is instead meant to recall Matan Torah. Just as we counted seven weeks of seven days to get to Matan Torah, so too we count seven cycles of seven years to get to Yovel. Just as we were supposed to sanctify ourselves for Matan Torah, we are supposed to sanctify the 50th year something we are not told to do regarding shmita. According to him, the verses specify Yovelhi three times, one for each aspect of the year, the freeing of slaves, returning of land, and refraining from work. Barbonell suggests that each of these represents freedom and thus further recalls Matan Torah. At Matan Torah, we stood before Hashem as free people recently emancipated from slavery. So too, on Yovel, we free all slaves. During Matan Torah, we were in the wilderness without the ability or the need to work the land, being miraculously sustained by manna. So too, on Yovel, we do not work the land. And finally, at Matan Torah, we were on the verge of retrieving the land of Israel promised us by Hashem in the covenant to Abraham. And so on Yovel, all land returns to its owners. In contrast to Rashi and Abarbanel, Ramban himself concludes that the word Yovel has nothing to do with the shofar, but comes from the root Yud Bet Lamed, which means to bring or lead someone from one place to another. He suggests that the year is so called, due to the freeing of slaves and returning of all to their homes. Let's then look at these two aspects of the mitzvah of Yovel more in depth. Though refraining from working the land is also a key aspect of the year, we won't discuss it in this class since that law was applicable to Shemitah as well, and most of what we learned about it in our last class can be applied to Yovel. But what's the idea behind the freeing of slaves and returning the land? The Sefer HaChinuch points to two potential goals. He writes, God instructs his people that all belongs to him and that eventually all must revert to the originally appointed owners, for his is the land, as it is stated, for the land is mine. The count of the 49 years as enjoined by the Torah will prompt people to abstain from misappropriating or coveting the fields of others in the knowledge that all must return to the divinely appointed owners. The Yovel law reminds us of kings who periodically confiscated tracts of land from their vassals to assert their sovereignty. Similarly, God decreed the restoration of land to the owners he originally appointed. Thus also, all servants are freed in order to to owe allegiance to God alone. But while monarchs act as described in order to keep their vassals in check, The Almighty's decrees are aimed at the refinement and welfare of his own chosen people. The Sefer HaChinuch speaks of two distinct goals. First, he points out that the knowledge that one's buying of land is only temporary reduces the desire of someone to cheat another out of their property. After all, he will have to return it regardless. This should serve to reduce man's tendencies towards materialism and the acquisition of wealth in general. He further compares the restoration of land to a king who confiscates lands from his servants in order to highlight their dominion over the others. Yovel similarly highlights Hashem's dominion, but in contrast to secular king sorry, in contrast to secular kings, Hashem showed this not by taking land for himself, but by returning it to the original owners. In addition, though a regular king might emphasize his power by enslaving another, Hashem does so by emancipating the slaves. In so doing, he teaches that he, not another human, is their king and master. One, however, might also suggest that the laws of freeing slaves and returning of land are aimed at aiding the poor and meant to create a more just society without huge gaps between the rich and poor. Nahama Liebwitz quotes the economist Henry George, who suggests that the laws of Yobel prevent a monopolization of land ownership which would naturally split society into a minority of rich elite landowners and a majority of poor who served these landowners. Along these lines, Zaev Jabotinsky suggests that the institution of Yovel tries to find the balance between capitalism and socialism. Torah recognizes the benefits of a free market society, which promotes growth and progress on multiple fronts, but it also recognizes its weaknesses. Over time, it tends to lead to big inequalities between rich and poor. More recently, Rabbi Sachs has elaborated on this idea. He points to the findings of the French economist Thomas Piketty regarding the pace in which inequalities are rising in today's global economy, noting that in the United States between 1979 and 2013, the top 1% saw their incomes grow by more than 240% while the lowest fifth experienced a rise of only 10%. Perhaps more striking, the combined wealth of the richest 85 individuals in the world is equal to the total of the poorest 3.5 billion, half the population of the world. It is to prevent this very phenomenon that the Torah institutes the mitzvot of Yovel. Freeing of slaves and returning of lands means that there should not be a minority which controls all of the nation's lands and those who are poor have a chance to start afresh. So the institutions of Yovel have much the same goals as Shemitah, recognition of Hashem's dominion on one hand and the equalizing of society on the other. Yovel is simply a much more intense version of Shemitah. We do not just leave our fruits for all to to take, but actually return the land. We do not just cancel debts, but actually free the indebted slaves. This then brings us to the second half of our unit, which focuses on not taking advantage of the other when buying or selling land. Verse 14. If you sell anything to your neighbor or buy from your neighbor, you shall not wrong one another. If you sell anything to your neighbor or buy from your neighbor, you shall not wrong one another. According to the number of years after the jubilee, you shall buy from your neighbor. According to the number of the years of the crops, he shall sell to you. According to the length of the years, you shall increase its price. And according to the shortness of the years, you shall diminish its price. For he is, for he is selling the number of the crops to you. You shall not wrong one another, but you shall fear your God, for I am Hashem. Our verses teach that when buying and selling land, one must make sure not to take advantage of the other, and to remember that what one is selling is not really the land, but use of the land. In addition, this is a lease, not a real sale. As such, one is not looking at the price of the land, but the number of years worth of crops that one will get from the land. Thus, one must always calculate how many years are left to the next Jubilee when determining the price. The same piece of land will be worth a lot more in year two, when one has 47 years worth of crops to gain from it, than in year 47, when it will be used for only two years. These verses mention the general directive against taking advantage of the other in both the opening and closing verses of the unit. Verse 14 states "Al and verse 17 echoes from a literary perspective, the doubling is not troubling. It simply serves to sandwich the unit. Ibn Ezra, though, suggests that perhaps one warning is aimed at the seller and the second at the buyer. Both need to be honest when setting the price. Chazal, in contrast, suggests that the verses are speaking of two different actions, ona'at mamon and ona'at dvarin, taking advantage of the other in monetary transactions and taking advantage of another through speech. We saw these same two categories with regard to not taking advantage of the foreigner. Here, though, we are speaking not just of the foreigner, but of all people. In addition, though the verse's context might imply that we are speaking only about dishonesty or mistreatment of the other in the realm of yovel-related transactions, Chazal generalized the prohibitions to all areas of life. In fact, according to Chazal, the prohibition includes a wide range of behaviors, the Gemara and Bava Mitzhiya give some examples. If one is a Baal you may not remind him of his earlier deeds. If someone went through trials and tribulations, such as losing his son or being plagued by illness, one may not suggest to the individual that it was due to his sins that such trials befell him. If you have no money on you, you may not ask a storekeeper how much an item costs, as you have no intention of buying it regardless. A last example, if someone asks you where to buy a certain object, You may not tell him that he can get it by a certain person if you know that person actually does not sell the item. It's not clear in this last case who the ona'a, the mistreatment, is aimed at, the potential buyer or the mislabeled seller. The Kesef Mishnek suggests that the problem is one of potential embarrassment to the person who is asked to sell something which he does not have and therefore has to make excuses. Alternatively, it is the buyer who will be embarrassed when they go to the so-called seller who might look at them like they're somewhat crazy for thinking he might help them when he is, for example, a doctor and not a merchant. The Ramban adds another example not found in the Gemara. You may not ask someone who is not an expert in a certain field to express his opinion on a topic when you know he doesn't have the knowledge to answer. So Ona'a includes a whole slew of things. Shaming another, raising one's expectations for no reason, reminding one of their weaknesses, and of course, taking advantage of another in the financial realm. Though one might think that the last example is the worst case, as it involves an actual monetary loss, the Gemara actually disagrees, suggesting that of the two categories, Una'at Mamon and Una'at Dvarim, it is onaat Dvarim, mistreatment through speech, which is the worst offense. You can give back money taken falsely. You cannot take back embarrassment or hurt that you cause another. The Gemara then goes on to point out how severe the offense of Ona'a is, with Rav Chista saying, Kol hasharim ninalim chutz All gates are locked except for those of Ona'a. In other words, the gates of prayer from victims of verbal mistreatment are never locked. Hashem will always see their tears and heed their prayers when it's said in their pain. To demonstrate the concept, the Gemara shares a very famous agadah, one which is often taken out of context, but which at its core speaks about ona'ah and is brought by the Gemara to demonstrate the severity of the prohibition, the story known as Tanur Shalachnai. It's a great story with lots of messages and points to ponder. So even though it's familiar to many, I'm going to share it once again as we see how it shed light on our halacha. The story opens with a halachic dispute over the purity of a certain oven, known as the oven of Achnai. All the rabbis rule one way, but Rabbi Eliezer disagrees. He shares proof after proof, but nonetheless, his opinion is not accepted. After exhausting all logical proofs, he then turns to the realm of the supernatural. He announces, if the halakha is like me, this carob tree will prove it. And right then, the carob tree uproots itself. The rabbis turn and declare, one cannot learn halakha from a carob tree. Rabbi Eliezer then points to a stream of water and declares that it will prove that the law is like him. And immediately, the stream begins to flow backwards. Again, the rabbis are not convinced. Rabbi Eliezer then turns to the walls of the Beit Midrash, which begin to topple in at his words. Another rabbi, Rabbi Oshoah, scolds the walls for intervening in the halachic dispute, telling them that they have no place in this battle of Tamadi Chachamin. The walls stop falling, and out of deference to each side, remain on a tilt not totally caving in, but not standing straight up either. Finally, Rabbi Eliezer declares, If the halakha is in accordance with my opinion, heaven will prove it. A divine voice emerges from heaven and says, Why are you disagreeing with Rabbi Eliezer, as the halakha is in accordance with his opinion in every place? One would think that this clinches the argument. After all, Rabbi Eliezer just got explicit divine approval for his opinion. Yet, Rabbi Yeshua famously responds, Lo bashamayim it is not in heavens. Law is decreed by the majority, not by a heavenly voice. Most people, when learning the Agadah, stop here, and they use this story to discuss the line between divine authority and human interpretation, questioning what does it mean that Rabbi the can be right and know the true divinely understood halakha, and yet still be wrong and the halacha be determined against him. The topic is an extremely important one, but actually not the reason that the Khmer brings the story where it does, in the middle of a discussion of Ona'at Dvarim, of verbal abuse or mistreatment. For that, we need to hear the rest of the story. In the aftermath of the dispute in the Beit Midrash, the sieges decide to ban and ostracize Rabbi Eliezer, presumably to ensure that he did not continue to rule against their halachic decree. They are unsure, though, how to break the news to him. Rabbi Akiva, one of Rabbi Eliezer's disciples, volunteers concerned that if the wrong person breaks the news and does it callously and without sensitivity, the world will be devastated. So Rabbi Akiva dresses in mourning, sits four cubits away from Rabbi Eliezer, the distance one must place between himself and one who is under a band, and gently tells Rabbi Eliezer the news. Rabbi Eliezer begins to cry, and with his tears... We are told that one third of the world's wheat, barley, and olive harvests were afflicted. Even with Rabbi Akiva's attempt to break the news lightly, Rabbi Eliezer is devastated. And with his devastation, the world too becomes devastated. Onat Devarim is no light matter. The story then shifts gear to focus on Rabban Gamiel, the Nasi of the Sanhedrin, responsible for ostracizing Rabbi Eliezer. He finds himself on a boat which is about to drown and on his own recognizes that this must be punishment for the, for the hurt caused to Rabbi Eliezer. He prays to Hashem, saying that he did not act in his own honor, but for the honor of Israel, lest disputes abound. Rabban Gamiel explains that for the unity of Israel, Rabbi Eliezer needed to be quieted. Otherwise, his opposing halachic rulings would cause dispute throughout the nation. Hashem hears the argument, and the sea calms down. The next scene shifts back to Rabbi Eliezer. We are told that his wife, Ima Shalom, happens to also be the sister of Rabban Gamliel. In other words, when Rabban Gamliel issued the ban against Rabbi Eliezer, this was against his own brother-in-law. From the day that Rabbi Eliezer is banned, Ima Shalom does not allow her husband to say tachanun, fearing that if he cried out during the prayer of mercy, her brother would be punished. One day she is distracted and isn't able to stop him in time, and she sees him saying tachanun. She turns to her husband and says, you just killed my brother. At that very moment, the shofar sounds to announce the death of the Nasi Rabban Gamliel. Rabbi Eliezer asks his wife, but how did you know? She replies, because we learned all the gates are locked except for the gates of Ona'a. The story is a very powerful demonstration of both the pain that our words and actions can cause and also how much a person's tears mean to Hashem. Even when well-intentioned, even when there are good reasons to tell off a person, to tell a person that he is wrong, one has to be so extra careful with how we say what we say and what we decide to say, and in general, how we treat the other. Rabban Gamiel might have been right that the nation could not afford disputes and that Rabbi Eliezer had to recognize that. But there might have been other ways of ensuring that Rabbi Eliezer did not rule against the majority. If the walls of the Beit Midrash could figure out how to make a compromise and neither fall in nor stand tall in deference to both sides of the dispute, maybe Ramban Kamiya could have also figured out a way of accomplishing his goal without causing the anguish that he did. Or maybe sometimes a decision could be right or at least the best possible under the circumstances. But nonetheless, one might still need to pay for the consequences. Words can stab just as easily and sometimes more deeply than any weapon. And when those words stab, Hashem hears the cries of those who hurt. All the gates are locked except for the gates of verbal mistreatment. Our next class will turn back to the laws of Yovel and Shemitah